Welcome to Tax and Super Australia's podcast, Tax Wrap, where we share developments, news and insights for all tax practitioners and SMSF professionals. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and share. We'd love to hear back from you, so send questions and comments, even suggestions for guest speakers, to podcast at taxandsuperaustralia.com.au. Hello listeners, welcome to the Tax Wrap Podcast. I'm your host Steve Burnham and we're into episode 171. Now today I'm, I'm joined by a special guest who's been on the podcast before, Simon Dovrich from A&A Tax Legal Consulting. Thanks for being here Simon. My pleasure Steve, it's great to be back on the show. Yeah, it's good to have you back. It's always informative and very interesting and today's no exception. We had a chat before and uh, we're going to be talking about today is the tax residency of corporates. Now I believe the tax residency of a company has used assumed principles for many years, however a draft ruling from the the ATO issued last year turned these well-established principles on their heads. So can you tell me what is the new ATO view and when is a company a tax resident of Australia? So the law says that a company is a tax resident of Australia if it satisfies any one of three tests. Right. The first test is, is it incorporated in Australia? Okay. And that's, of course, quite straightforward. Yep. Uh, you know, is it, yeah, you can find that out quite easily by looking at ASIC's registers. Yep. But if a company is not incorporated in Australia, it can still be a resident if it carries on business in Australia and has either its central management and control in Australia or its voting power controlled by shareholders who are residents in Australia. Okay. So that's two tests. Right. Uh, carrying on business in Australia and central management and control in Australia or carrying on business in Australia and voting power controlled by Australian residents. Given that, I mean, why did the ATO issue a new ruling? How, why was that necessary? Yeah, so, so it's not a case of the legislation being changed, no. but rather a case, a situation of the High Court ruling in a case that looked at the application of, of these rules. I see. And particularly at that second contest uh, regarding central management and control. Okay. And the ATO felt that in light of that ruling, I'm referring here to uh, the Bywater decision. Okay. They felt that the previous tax ruling that outlined their views on the topic, you know, was no longer, could no longer be supported by, by the case law. Okay. And that they had to issue uh, a new ruling. Okay. It was a court case that moved their hand, as it were, like, you know, made them think, oh, hang on, this companies could get around this little uh, ruling here if uh, we don't change the ruling. Yeah, okay. look, in my my opinion, personally, yes. I think that had the previous tax ruling, uh, and that was TR 2004-15, yep. if the ATO's views... In, as expressed in that ruling, had been applied to uh, the companies in the Bywater decision, right. uh, I think the, the same result, oh, that would they have... would have re- achieved the same result, oh, that really? they wouldn't have been taxed residents of okay. Australia. Oh, sorry, that they would have been really? taxed residents. Yep. So I'm not entirely convinced that a whole entire new ruling was oh. required, but yeah. evidently the ATO did. So we've, uh, we've got to live with it. So. Yeah. <laughs> I suspect that uh, this new ruling will uh, increase the number of companies that, you know, will now be considered to be residents uh-huh. of Australia, which, uh, of course, a cynical mind may uh, <laughs> may it may occur to <clears throat> to them that that will obviously increase the income that is potentially subject to uh, to tax in Australia. I must so. be a cynical mind because that's what I thought. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll just increase the number of companies deemed to be a tax resident. So, what's the difference? What I mean, what does the new ruling say? How is it different? So, the new ruling it's structured around four key questions. 
does the company carry on business in Australia? Mm-hmm. What does central management and control mean? Who exercise central management and control? And finally, the fourth question, where is central management and control exercised? Right. So perhaps we can look through, you know, one by one yeah, at yeah. those yep. four questions. And the first one, does the company carry on business in Australia? That's probably the most significant departure in this new tax ruling oh, really? uh, to TR 2018-5 okay. when compared to the old TR 2004-15. So 2004, so that's been around for quite a while. It is, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, many taxpayers obviously uh, came to rely on... Uh, the ATO's guidance, and now we'll we'll really have to uh, you know revisit uh, revisit the new ruling. Exactly yeah. right. Sorry, so so uh, the first question: How how is, does that differ? According to the, and I might just read out a, a quote from the, the okay. new ruling. Yep. It says, if a company carries on business and has its central management and control in Australia, it will carry on business in Australia within the meaning of the central management and control test of residency. It is not necessary for any part of the actual trading or investment operations of the business of the company to take place in Australia. This is because the central management control of a business is factually part of carrying on that business. A company carrying on business does so both where its trading and investment activities take place and where the central management and control of those activities occur. So what that's saying is that for a company to be carrying on business in Australia for the purposes of this test, it just needs to have carry on a business of some kind anywhere in the world, uh, and business is very widely defined. Yeah, it's it's Uh, getting more international as each year passes, of course. And have central management and control in Australia. So essentially, whereas before the ATO would view the test as a a two-tiered test with two requirements, Hmm. you need to carry on a business in Australia, and you need to have central management and control in Australia. Now, essentially, as long as you have central management and control in Australia, it will follow automatically, according to their new view, that the company also carries on business in Australia. Okay. So as before, the ATO would say, well, to determine whether or not you're carrying on business in Australia, we'll look at if you're a trading company, where are the majority of your operations actually taking place? (coughs) And that could very well be somewhere separate to where the business is managed. Is managed, yeah, the the Uh, head office, as it were. Exactly. You you may have a situation where a company is, the high-level decisions are made in Sydney, for example, but they sell to Singapore. And right. have uh, you know the have an outlet the, there, yeah, and, that, and that's they don't do any business with Australians for whatever reason. Uh-huh. It's everything's in Singapore. Yep, all the you know the trading and the customers and so on. Under the old ruling, the ATO would say, well, they're not a that company is not a tax resident hmm. because it doesn't satisfy the carrying on business in Australia portion. Yeah, yep. And f- for companies where it's really they earn their income from a more passive uh, investment decisions, yep. well, in those situations, it will more often be the case that the distinction between central management and control and business operations right. is much finer and therefore the same set of facts could satisfy both aspects of the test. Yeah, I suppose a type of business would have an influence. I can imagine, say, a software or IT 
firm, an Australian off IT firm, would be dealing with anyone they like across the world. But uh, so I suppose that is a bit of a difference then when you when you put it that way. That first question to the old ruling, I should say, about carrying on business in Australia. Yeah. So the reason for the change is it goes back to actually a, an old case by the name of Malayan shipping. So in, in the Bywater decision, the, the judgment, yep. which of course it's available online to read if, for those listeners who are interested, mm-hmm. they sort of give a summary of uh, some of the most important cases on this topic of corporate tax residency and they gave some comments that it was supportive of an interpretation of Malayan shipping that says you know if central management control that essentially central management control is the core of carrying on a business yeah yeah and therefore that's all you need to satisfy okay yeah. uh, and that's essentially that almost as an aside it, it really wasn't necessary for them to say this to form a judgment on whether you know Bywater and those associated companies yeah. were tax yeah. resident no because no. that aside, the, the commissioner has uh, jumped on it and uh, said we better issue a, a new tax ruling. a whole new ruling. And just for listeners um, benefit, the Bywater, B-Y-W-A-T-E-R, by the way, if you want to look that up. Okay, so, well, but we've got the new ruling, so I suppose we have to deal with that. The, you said there were four questions and we've been through the, the first. Is it timely to look at the... Sure, let's move on uh, to the second. Yep. And the second question is, what does central management and control mean? So, central management and control... It refers to the management and control decisions that are made at the highest level of a company. So we can distinguish that from sort of more operational, transactional level oh, yeah. uh, okay. decisions. Yeah, more strategic decisions rather than day-to-day yes. money. Okay. Yeah, although, of course, what what is a, a high-level decision, what is central management and control, well, yeah. will, will obviously depend on the individual company. If a company, for example, that has many thousands of transactions, being able to prove uh, one of them is probably not an exercise of central management and control. But another company may be incorporated for the sole purpose of uh, buying a particular asset and then later disposing of it. And obviously the decision to buy and sell an asset of that significance, in that case, uh, would most likely be an exercise of central That's management true. control. That's true. So the so the ruling now gives us some examples, some some guideline on uh, what central management control means. Means okay. So it lists setting investment and operational policy. For example, uh, deciding to buy or sell significant assets, mm-hmm. appointing company officers and agents, and granting them power to carry on the company's business, and the revocation of such appointments and powers. Overseeing and controlling those appointments, those appointed, sorry, to carry out the day-to-day business of the company. And finally, uh, matters of finance, like uh, declaring dividends. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it also gives some examples of day-to-day business of the company, these uh, lower-level management that you know, would not be considered uh, central management management to control. Yep. And they're things like keeping a share register, keeping a set of accounts, determining where company pays dividend and conducting the minimum acts necessary to maintain a company's registration. Okay, so more compliance things, you would think. Yeah, uh, as well. So those mere formalities. Yeah, that are important. Yeah, of course yeah, they're important, yeah. but they're not the uh, you know the real decision making yep. okay. of the business. Okay, yeah. Well, it seems pretty clear, but it's a, as you said, it depends on the business, so it's a case by case. I'd imagine. That's right. Uh, yeah. yeah, not two businesses are, are the same. And, yeah, you know yeah. what's important for one is uh, insignificant for another. Yep, yep. I see. Okay, um, and and that's different to the old 
ruling in, in some regard, is it? Well, it is largely the same as the old ruling. There are, of course, different phrases used and that, right. uh, lawyers and, and accountants and uh, <laughs> will pour over to okay. uh, find significance. Yep. But fundamentally, you know, it's a long line of authority in case law that central management and control refers to you know, the real top-level decisions. Yeah, yeah. And Bywater really didn't change that approach. And so the new tax ruling fundamentally is really very, very similar to, okay. to the old one in, on the, this question. That, yeah, okay, fine. Okay, so is it, that's covered the second... Yes, well, we've hit the All halfway right. mark. Come on, hit the halfway mark. Number <laughs> so, three, what are we looking at? So number three, third question is who exercises central management and control? Ah, okay. And that was a key part of the, the Bywater decision. So there, ostensibly, the companies were being managed by foreign directors at meetings that were being held outside of Australia. Ah, okay. Is this what sort of brought about the whole case, that they were not here, residents, uh, making decisions? That's right. The, they on. said, well, our central management and control is being exercised by non-Australians uh, outside of Australia. Hmm. Look at these minutes and our constitution and all the the, the official documents of the company. They, yep. they all say that that's what's happening. So you have to find that we're a non-resident. Uh, okay. So this is what the company was trying to do, to try not to be a tax it, resident of Australia. Exactly. Okay. And the ATO argued, and the uh, the High Court agreed, that yep. uh, you know, that was all a sham. <laughs> they used a turn of phrase that I thought uh, I quite enjoyed. They said it was a, a crooked pantomime. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like hearing those things from uh, courts anyway. A crooked pantomime. Yeah. Nice. They said that if you look into the actual fact of how these companies are run, yep. that there's there's a guy in Sydney by the name of uh, Mr. Vander Gould. He was the real decision maker of the company. Okay. Whatever he decided the company should do, the company would do. These directors meeting in Samoa or, or in various parts around the world, depending on... The case actually involved more than more than one company. Right. There's... They're merely rubber-stamping decisions oh. made by this uh, Mr. Gould in Sydney. Uh, person. In Sydney. Where? So the lawyers in on behalf of Bywater, they pointed to an earlier case called Esquire nominees, and they said that case establishes a, a precedent that, you know, that the court needs to rule in our favour. Right. So, so Esquire nominees, that was a case where, at first glance, it appears quite similar. You, you had an accounting firm based in Australia. Yep. Giving advice, depending on how you looked at it, that advice could have been seen as instructions oh, right. yeah. uh, uh, to uh, directors of this company outside of Australia. Right. But despite that, the court looked into it and they said, no, we still think it's not the Australian accountant that's running the show here. Not, he's not the, the key decision maker. I see. Yeah. The directors of the foreign company, they still are exercising central management and control. Hmm. And the reason why they did that, in fact, I've got a quote from the ruling. The, the Justice Gibbs said the firm had power to exert influence and perhaps significant influence on the appellant but that is all the directors in fact complied with the wishes of the accountants because they accepted that it was in the interests of the beneficiaries uh, it was a, a corporate trustee okay yep. if on the other hand the accountants had instructed the directors to do something which they considered improper or inadvisable i do not believe they would have acted on the instruction 
They still had some discretion, he's saying that... Uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so th- they always did what this accountant said they should do. Right. But that was only because the accountant you know, gave, gave, good, se- gave good sensible, sensible advice, advice yep. and they considered that advice and uh. they agreed with it and uh. so they followed it. But you know, according to Justice Gibbs in this Esquire nominee's case, yep. if the accountant had said, do something that's not in the best interests of of the trust the beneficiaries yep. or something that was illegal or untoward, uh, untoward least, yep. they wouldn't have done it they uh, wouldn't have blindly followed anything that the accountant told them to do okay and in bywater the judges said well that's a different that's very different to uh, what we've got here yeah here we've got a situation where the directors blindly rubber stamped anything that they were told to do yep. had some cases had such little understanding of the company's affairs and what they were supposed <laughs> deciding yep. that it was obvious that they'd given no thought and and would under all circumstances just do whatever they were so told. Just keep signing the documents, keep taking the director fee, and everything was yeah, running don't, don't, being run by this guy in Sydney. Don't ask too many questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, that's interesting because so you have one case, well, law, I suppose, the Esquire being turned around in the Bywater case. But it's interesting. Because, well, I think it's a good thing because in the end, Australia gets more tax revenue. Are you having more tax residents, corporate tax residents here paying their taxes and um, Good thing having all the lawyers running around <laughs> working these things out in the end. Yeah, I think it's always better to have a, a substance over form approach. Right. That, you know, what if what happens as a you know matter of of actual fact mm. is different to what gets written on a document? Yeah, then, yeah. then really, what should matter, and you know, the High Court says what does matter, yeah. is what's really going on. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, this is how you iron out the uh, loopholes that can develop from out of legislation that isn't tested in, in the real world, mm. uh, which is really good. Yeah, exactly right. And, okay. and you know, this is an area of law, corporate residency, that doesn't have too many decisions make its way to the High Court. So, oh, really? Well, so it's, you know, it's not a at least not area. recently. <laughs> It's not an interesting or sexy area of, of tax law, but uh, it's very important. Well, that, that third question seems to be uh, a straying from the old status quo, so that's a very different thing that's come out of the ruling then. Yeah, and there are some some further points in the uh, in the ruling. Oh, uh, good, yeah. And there's also, uh, I didn't mention earlier, that there's not just a tax ruling that's been released, and that's in final format, right. but also a practical compliance guideline, oh, good. Uh, 2018-D3. And the D in D3, of course, signifies that it's still in draft. Ah. So, and there's still time for uh, people to make their comments. Okay, well, uh, actually, the, I didn't know that. So D means draft. That's good to know. Uh, yeah, that's okay. right. So the due date for comments for this practical compliance guideline is 20 July 2018. Ah, so it's very soon. Yes. Okay. And in fact, when I was look, researching the uh, the tax ruling yep. uh, that was originally issued in draft, yep. I came across a submission that the professional accounting bodies made, a tax and super I, among them. We were there, uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I thought uh, that they made uh, some excellent points, almost <laughs> all of which were ignored by the ATR oh. when, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, we when try. issuing the uh, the final ruling. Right. But yeah, it was interesting to read that submission that tax and super and, and others made, and uh, yeah. I, I thought you made some, some very compelling points. Well, thank you. On behalf of our technical team, I had nothing to do with that, but that's uh, <laughs> good to know that we're sta- making some statements. I've distracted myself a bit. I was going <laughs> going to uh, mention some other helpful guidance that oh, yeah, the commissioner yeah. mentions you know, on this question of who exercises central management and control. Yeah. So they say that a person who has legal power or authority to control and direct a company but does not use it does not exercise central management and control. 
Ah, so, so they may have the authority, but they don't exercise that authority. That's right. Really? You need to actually exercise it. But conversely, an individual without any legal power or authority may nevertheless still exercise central management and control. So again, you, you look at what's really going on, not okay. w- not what are the legal powers. This this man, Van der Gould fellow, uh, uh, supposedly had a little to no legal power or yep. authority over the company. But as a matter of fact, uh, he really was pulling the strings. Pulling the strings. It's interesting. I suppose it's the case like where you have a family company and you know, an uncle Bob was running the joint and he sort of steps back a bit and gives a little Johnny control. But uncle, everyone listens to Uncle Bob. He says, oh, you should do this or you should do that. And everyone jumps and listens, but uh, he might not actually have the authority on paper. Mm. But um, I can imagine that happening. Anyway, I'm yeah. distracting myself here. The ATO also says a person may control and direct a company without actively intervening in the company's affairs on an ongoing basis, provided they tacitly control the agents or managers they have appointed regularly exercise oversight and do not need to actively intervene because the company is running in the manner they desire there you go that's what i mean that's the whole uncle running the show <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay there you so, go. Uh, yeah as long as they're you know they're keeping an eye on things and yeah if they don't intervene simply because there's no need yeah then that's they can still be the, the yeah, exercising central management yeah, control yeah, i see and the, they say the directors of of a subsidiary company do not cease to exercise central management and control merely because they conclude that it is in the best interests of the company to fa- facilitate the plans and policies of its parent comply with proper proposals advanced to it by its parent yep. that are also in the interests of the company group or make decisions only after receiving approval from its parent right and, and that guidance is helpful because you know when we consider who's most likely to be affected by by this yeah, ruling, who is yeah i think the answer is australian groups that have expanded overseas and have set up subsidiaries incorporated in foreign companies, yep. foreign countries. countries, and of course those that are planning on doing so in, in the future. And as you said earlier, trade and, and business is becoming much more uh, international. Uh, global, yeah. Yeah, that's certainly international tax is one of the areas we focus on at, yep. at ANA, Tax Legal Consulting. And so there's lots of businesses that have expanded o- offshore, set up a subsidiary overseas, yep. and they will certainly be wanting to uh, review their their arrangements uh, very closely to make sure... Yeah, to follow exactly right, exactly. I mean, I I assume that... um, Oh, did did we cover the fourth question? Uh, No, not yet. So, yeah, we absolutely, we should get to some practical takeaways of what those companies can do. But perhaps we do, before we do that, we should look at the fourth question. Quick look at number four, then we'll get back Uh, to the practicality. Which is, uh, where is central management and control exercised? Oh, where, okay. And that, of course, is the key question, because to be a resident under the the test that we're looking at, Mm. the central management and control must be exercised in Australia. Right. So the ruling says that it's a matter of fact and and substance, not, again, not sort of what's written, you know, formal legal documents. Where do those who exercise central management and control, where do they perform that central management and control? Where do they make these high-level decisions to direct the company? And they list some factors that they say are, are most likely to influence a court's decision regarding where central management and control is yep. located, where those who exercise central management and control do so, rather than where they live. Oh. That's the number one factor. But other important factors include where the governing body of the company meets, where the company declares and pays dividends, the nature of the business, and whether it dictates where control and management decisions are made in practice, right. and minutes or other 
documents recording where high-level decisions are made. And it contrasts that with matters of lesser weight that may still be important, but not as important. Yep. And that's where those who control and direct the company's operations live, where the company's books are kept, where its registered office is located, where the company's register of shareholders is kept, uh, where the shareholders' meetings are held, and finally, where its shareholders reside. So all f- like physical locality type determinations or all that. I suppose where the company's listed, Wax Stock Exchange. Yeah, those are of lesser importance. Okay. The most important factor is, as a matter of fact, in truth, where are the decisions being made? Yep. Are they being made in Australia or, or outside of Australia? And that can be difficult to determine in cases where you have central management and control split over multiple locations. Oh, of course. Uh, which, you know, courts have established it is possible for a company to be centrally managed and controlled from more than one place. Mm. Yep. And the ATO accepts that in, in their ruling. You may have, for example, maybe they hold one meeting in Australia and then the next meeting in France and yeah. the next <laughs> meeting in uh, Hong Kong and, well... <laughs> How do you determine That's residency true. there? Or, or you know, with video conferencing technology, you, oh, you may course. have you know, one director in Australia and, and another in Singapore yeah, and, and yeah. so on, and, and they're able to, to meet quite easily you know, through their computer screens. Yeah, yeah. And the ATO says that, again, it, it comes down to you know, where are the directors, it, assuming it is, in fact, the directors that are the, the real decision makers. Yep. Those They are the ones that exercise central management control. Uh, they haven't been sort of usurped by some accountant in, in Sydney. Yeah. The key question is, well, where are they when these discussions are, are taking place, you know, when these decisions are being made? Right. You know, don't get too hung up on where the, the location of the server is on the, oh, yeah, yeah. the ISP <laughs> and also, you know, these sorts of technical IT matters. Yeah. It's, you know, where are the people who are making the decision? Mm making those decisions yeah, from. Yeah. yeah, okay. And unless they're constantly sailing the world in their yacht, they've got to be somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that's right. And I mentioned that a company can be controlled and directed from multiple locations. Oh, yeah. But the ATO's view, and you know, it's, it's supported by uh, you know, considerable case law, it still needs to be exercised to a substantial degree in a particular location, right. uh, sufficient to conclude that the company is really carrying on a business there yeah. before the ATO will accept that it's the central management control is a particular location. So, okay. so one meeting that happens to uh, be in a particular place because you know, the directors are on holiday there, mm. that would not uh, cause That doesn't change the game. No. Exactly. Okay. Well, so someone you mentioned, um, I'm assuming that a company would seek to not be a tax resident of Australia for, to gain some advantage, I mean, from their tax situation, and a company seeking to avoid being an Australian resident needs to be very careful, especially now that this new ruling's come down. Is this law yet, or is this... Uh, is it- well, it, the ATO, they have said that there's a, uh, a transitional period. Ah. So until between now and the 13th of December 2018, right. they've said that, you know, provided that certain conditions are met, they're not going to assign compliance resources to okay. to go after a company that, under the old tax ruling, yep. was a non-resident, and because of the change in the ATO's view, are now a, a tax resident, right. they're going to give those companies until 13th of December huh. uh, 2018, so okay. about five months or so from yeah, yeah. when we're recording, to make any changes that are necessary yep. to ensure that they comply with this new tax right. ruling. Or be, can be deemed to be tax residents. Exactly yeah. right. So what, what are the practical outcomes? What, what do, can we look at practically for corporates in light of this new ruling? 
I think the uh, the most important takeaway is that the directors of the the foreign incorporated company they really need to be actively involved in, in the decision making yep. and not not merely uh, rubber stamping decisions made by okay, made yep. by others yep. so some things that they should do or have these directors they should have the required qualifications experiences and skills to make informed decisions okay yeah obviously if they don't have those things then how could they be the ones making the decision exactly. it's more likely they're just they, as you said before the rubber stamp yeah yes okay. that's right have they gathered reviewed and understood sufficient relevant material to mm. enable them to properly consider proposals that the parent or, or an outsider puts to them mm-hmm. Have they sought external expert advice where appropriate? Have they met frequently enough to actually exercise central management and control? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I imagine complex business requ- would require more than one meeting per year yeah. to decide all the things that need to get decided. Yeah. Do they proactively consider the merits of any proposals and whether they are in the best interests of the company? Have they power to refuse or deviate from instructions received by the parent or, or outsider? And can they adequately explain why decisions were made and why any alternate proposals were rejected okay you know if you if you can't explain why you made a, a decision <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's true probably a sign that you didn't actually make that make decision that's right. yeah so that's very important and and of course documentation is is always important yes yeah, yeah it's not just you know what you do but what you can prove to the ato mm. and the ato have said that board minutes are a, a starting point mm. in, in most cases but where the company hasn't kept board meetings board minutes yep. or where the uh, the high level decisions are made outside of board meetings or where the board minutes you know are false or you know don't disclose what's actually going on right yeah you know, then they can look at other evidence and that could include papers circulated to board members in advance of meetings contemporaneous emails and correspondence and oral evidence and statements by those involved in the decision-making process. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's important that these uh, foreign individuals show that they really are the... The real decision makers yeah, yeah. making those decisions overseas, even if they're they're influenced by people in Australia. Influence is okay, but you know, not not controlled by people in Australia. Right, right. And of course, being able to prove that that's the case with uh, uh, with evidence. Yeah, just um, I'm just wondering if you have any idea of if this will make a difference. Do you think this will mean, or is your feeling that this will mean there will end up being more corporate tax residents after December? Or it's hard to tell. Look, I think that's certainly a possibility. I, I think. Companies will be going to their advisors and finding out what they need to do to avoid that yeah, because, yeah. Uh, after all, a, a resident is taxed on worldwide income. And ah, that's right. A non-resident only on Australian-sourced income. Yeah. So there's potentially a significant impact to the whole host of other laws that they're impacted by residency. Yeah, yeah. Although in, in cases where there's a double taxation agreement in place, uh, of course, if you've got two countries claiming you as a resident, yeah, then yeah. Uh, there are a tiebreaker provisions that That's right. will you know, become increasingly important now. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think uh, in many cases, companies will do what they can to avoid uh, being exposed to... Uh, to this additional tax. Yes, yeah. Well, that double tax agreements are being added to all... The list of countries are being added to all the time. I know there was one just, just this year, I think, Republic of Estonia or something anyway. Yeah, but I know that uh, Germany's... We, we've had one with them for quite some time. Okay. But we uh, we renegotiated that one. Okay. I believe Israel is... We, we don't currently have a, a DTA with Israel, but according to a press release, it's it's being negotiated. Oh, good. Uh, I'm not sure what the status is. No, but, no, but still. Yeah, it shows that... Uh, yeah, the 
the list of countries that Australia has a DTA mm. with is, is always growing. Well, there's that factor and what we've just been talking about today, which is just uh, further evidence that business is getting more global as the years go by. So these sorts of things are, need to be looked at every now and then. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Okay, that's all very enlightening. Um, thanks again, Simon, for coming in and telling us all that, all those facts and figures and things. My pleasure, Steve. There's a lot to take in, so perhaps worthy of a re-listen after, after you'd hit the um, stop button. But listeners also, I uh, should mention that corporate resident tax residency sorry, is a topic of an upcoming Taxpayer magazine uh, article that Simon has, has written for us. That's in the August issue, so keep an eye out for that in the next few weeks. Thanks again for being with us. Please tune in next time. 